right. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Ideas Sin. I am really excited to present to you James Michael. He was my instructor for my survival intensive course that I took last year into the beginning of this year. It was like, what was it, like an eight month course or six months? Yeah, it was eight months. Oh man, I can't believe it was eight months. It feels like it it should have been like six. In my head, it's registering as six, but like, yeah, eight months is quite a bit. Yeah, it does kind of. I, you know, I feel like maybe just the way the the classes are stacked up in in like just like the weekend, and maybe it feels like that. I don't know. Yeah, and so I mean, you've you've taught the survival course like about how many times would you say? Um, at Earth Native, I probably taught that three times now. Okay. Oh my gosh. What was like the inspiration to even get into teaching survival? I mean, you, you've taken some courses. I've already heard you through the course, but you know, I'd love to hear you talk about like, what got you into this mindset of trying to learn survival tactics and basics and strategy yeah. and all that stuff? How far back do you want to go? Like to the or- origin of the concept for me? <laughs> um, Sure. Yeah. Like okay. the the very point where you were like, "Ooh, I'm interested in that." Like, when was it that your curiosity like peaked <laughs> around this topic? <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So that goes really far back. I think, man, it's going to sound very weird, and I promise it will tie together, and make sense. But Jurassic <laughs> Park was the start of all of this for me. Yeah. Um, when I was growing up, I loved dinosaurs, and my babysitter. She had never seen Jurassic Park, but she went to Blockbuster and she rented a VHS copy of it because she was just like, oh, it's dinosaurs. James will, James Michael will love this. <laughs> and I I got to watch it by myself in my living room. And I was just like, oh, my God, this is the coolest thing ever. And mind you, I was probably like five or six years old at this point oh. watching Jurassic Park, which I think the VHS copy was like rated R. So it was definitely something. <laughs> was that it really? Watch. I think it's PG-13 now, but I could have sworn okay. I once saw a VHS copy with the rated R. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But definitely not something a kid my age should have been watching. But I loved it. And I immediately just like my my love for dinosaurs sunk in so deeply that everything in my life just had to be about dinosaurs. And I didn't know at that point dinosaurs were extinct. So I Aww. would go outside and I wanted to find dinosaurs. So I had this like weird explorers mentality where i was just like "Ooh, there's like a little patch of woods maybe there's a dinosaur in there so i wanted to go explore i never really got to explore these places but i wanted to and um and so because my family growing up i grew up on long island in 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 lake grove like right next to the center of long island and my mother is an accountant and she i don't know if she's ever camped in her life she might have a couple times but it doesn't run in her blood and my stepdad, he grew up in New York too. And I think when he was really young, he did do some outdoorsy things. Like I had heard a rumor that he used to catch frogs and then sell them to restaurants for, for frog what? legs. <laughs> I don't know how true that is. I find it hard to believe because he is a banker and um, or he was a banker. He's retired now. But these are two people whose mindsets and actions were the complete opposite of any sort of outdoorsy thing I could think of. Mm. And so I didn't really grow up with that. And I remember I was in, I just finished ninth grade and I was going into the summer between ninth and 10th. 
And my brother, my older brother, Mike, who's probably 15 years older than me, he was watching TV in the living room. And there was this TV show called Survivor Man with Les Stroud from Canada. And at the time, Survivor Man was kind of like this new revolutionary thing where people were watching survival in real life. And Ray Mears in in um, the UK had done some similar stuff, but it wasn't so popular in the US as like, uh, because Les Stroud was doing this on the Discovery Channel. And, and so that really blew up here. And I remember I watched an episode where he was surviving in the Canadian boreal forest and he simulated like an injury and all this stuff. And I was just like, whoa, this is super cool. Like, I can't believe this human being is just going out in the middle of nowhere and surviving. I didn't even know that was a thing you could do nowadays. And I remember after I'd watched it, I told my mom, I was like, hey, I want to be like a survival person as a career. And she will deny this for her whole life probably. (laughs) (laughs) But she 100% looked at me and was like, that is a terrible idea because (laughs) it doesn't exist. That's not a thing. Um, And you will be homeless and poor. And she wasn't entirely wrong in that, <laughs> but I found my passion and love in that. And and so it kind of squashed me a little bit hearing that, you know, from someone that I really, whose word I respected. And um, yeah. that same summer, I went to go visit my aunt and uncle. And my aunt had taken a couple of ethnobotany courses. And so she knew some plants. And I had really shown this interest to her that I wanted to understand nature and learn how to like survive and do things. And so she would just randomly start pointing out plants when I was on this vacation with my aunt and uncle. And I remember a couple of the ones that I really attached to were like lamb's quarter, which is edible and it kind of tastes like spinach. And there's one called pineapple weed, which just like grows in disturbed areas and cracks and it smells like pineapples and you can use it in a tea. And I was just like, whoa, I'm learning stuff already. Like now I'm a survivalist. And (laughs) Then we took a ferry ride to a place called um, Plattsburgh, New York. Are you familiar with Plattsburgh? Yeah, I've Off heard of it. Like Champlain. I might have. Yeah, I might have gone. It's by a cozy it. little town. Yeah, at least from my memories, I've never been there since. Um, so we got to Plattsburgh and we went to an antique bookstore, and uh, or you know, it was not just books. There was other things there too, but it predominantly had a lot of books there. And I found an old. Tom Brown Wilderness Survival Book. And I was just like, ooh, cool. Like, this is a legit survival book. So I asked my aunt if she would buy it for me. And then she also bought me a book called um uh Chasing, no, Hunting the Wild Asparagus or something like that. It's an old <laughs> wild edibles book. <laughs> and it's oh, just cool. pages. Yeah, it's super cool. It's just pages filled with like wild plants and how to turn them into a really nice meal. Um, and so these two books are very inspirational to me. I remember at the same time, uh, this was also when my love and fascination for knives began. I snuck away from them while they were perusing the books and I went to the counter <laughs> and there was this old shady <laughs> dude there. And I was just like, Hey, can I buy one of these knives? And I'm pretty sure that he wasn't supposed to sell knives to minors, but he didn't care. He was like, yeah, which one do you want? And there's this huge K-bar knife. And I was like, can I get that one? He was like, yeah, it's $100. I was like, I can't afford that. What else you got? And so he sold me <laughs> this really crappy Bowie knife. But to me, it was like, whoa, this is super cool. And yeah. I think 
it was probably like three inches long, not a very long blade, but to me it was like a sword. And I never held mm-hmm. a knife before because again, my parents weren't those kind of people. They, they kind of were very against knives and, and guns and things like that. So like anything dangerous pushed away from me. Um, and so I thought this was the coolest thing ever. And I remember I put it in my pocket, hid it from my, my aunt and uncle. Um, and after that, we were waiting for, maybe not waiting for the ferry, but we were near the water and I sat on this boulder and I didn't know it at the time, but I had my very first sit spot in my life where I just mm. sat in nature and didn't do anything. And it happened because I had heard legends that Lake Champlain had a sea monster or something like that called Champy. <laughs> and I was like, ooh, if I sit here long enough, maybe I'll see Champy. Um, yeah. And as I was sitting on this boulder that protruded into the water, a, um, a long-tailed weasel with its winter coat or yeah, it was his winter coat. Um, so it was probably closer to the end of summer or something like that, but it was all white and it came out of the bushes and it was on the rock, maybe like this far from me. And it looked up at me, mm. looked back at the water, turned around and just went back into the woods. And I was like, what the heck was that? I was just like, <laughs> holy crap. I had never seen a weasel in my life. I didn't even know what weasels were. And so it was just like this weird, like what I would imagine explorers going to the Amazon encounter was like, you know, just seeing something you never, ever expected in your life. And that just kept fueling my curiosity and want to just like explore wild places. And so, yeah, after that, I bummed around with the idea of how to find that, find a way to fuel that curiosity and that passion in a realistic sense. And so I, I was a very impressionable young boy and I thought like <laughs> movies were real. And when I mean real, I mean like the way they portrayed things was, was realistic. And so I'd watch movies with Arnold Schwarzenegger, like Predator or Commando. And it's like these shirtless dudes who are jacked running through the jungles. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, right. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and they're just like shooting guns and discovering temples and treasures and having these crazy cool adventures. And I was like, that's what I've got to do. So I joined the military and it was nothing like that. <laughs> and I was very disappointed yeah. and I, I hated the bureaucracy of anything. I didn't learn any survival hard skills. I didn't realize it till um, years ago that what they had taught me was a lot of the soft skills. I don't even like using the word soft skills really because they are hard to learn, but like more of the mindset of, of a survivalist. And and so I was very jaded with the military. I was like, this is not the adventure I was promised from the movies. And so when I got out, I didn't know what to do with my life. I was just like, I, I didn't get the adventure I was looking for. I haven't filled that hole. And and so I just started working security jobs at, at random places, trying to use my background and my clearance level that I'd gotten from the military, hoping that like somehow I would kind of just stumble upon the answer. And finally, I was like, you know what? Screw it. I'm just going to use my GI Bill and go to college. And I had just recently watched Indiana Jones. So again, movies. And, <laughs> yeah. and I thought, Ooh, archeology, span maybe that's how I do this. Maybe that's how I, I get the adventure and the, the ability to go into the wilderness and, and learn all these cool skills. And I started taking these classes at Suffolk County community college on Long Island. And um, I wasn't learning 
all the skills I wanted, but it was fueling my desire and curiosity to want to continue this. And so I thought, okay, I'm probably on the right path now. But I also understood that archaeology is not a field that pays a lot of money. And it's also a field in which if you don't have a master's or a PhD, it's extremely difficult to be able to do all the things you really want to do. I mean, I've had friends who have bachelors in archaeology, and most of the time they're doing lots of like um, CRM work, which is cultural resource management. So like if someone's building a highway, they're called out there to make sure that there's no artifacts or, or anything, and they'll do a survey of the site, which is pretty cool. But I wanted to like lead expeditions into like the wilderness and, and do crazy cool stuff like Indiana Jones. And so I thought to myself, how do I do that? I'll never afford a PhD unless I take student loans out. And I just wasn't ready to accept a life of having to pay off loans until my mid 40s or 50s. And so my very naive brain was like, wait a minute, what if? I find some survival school that's like, I don't know, a weekend long or maybe a week or two long. And I go there, I master these skills in those couple of weeks. And then I just go to South America and find <laughs> my own ancient civilizations and then sell that information to whatever university wants it. I clearly had no idea how the world worked. <laughs> and so... Uh, that was the plan. And so I went on my computer and I typed in uh, GI Bill Wilderness School. And the first school that popped up was this place called Alderleaf Wilderness College in Washington. And I was like, cool, what's their program? And I saw that it was a year long. I was like, whoa, a year long program. And, and not just like a year long where you come once a month or you come on weekends. It was like, you're there all the time for a whole year. And so I was like, there's no way I won't be a master by the time I'm done with this school. So I went, I, I packed all my things. I sold everything that I couldn't keep. And I shipped whatever else I needed to to Washington, which is like two boxes. So my entire life was reduced down to two boxes and my backpack. And I flew out to Washington. And um, when I got there, I thought I was a decent survivalist because of the books I read and the shows I watched and the movies I watched. And I remember when I first got there, my first impression was, whoa, look at the size of those trees. They were intimidating. <laughs> I was, have you ever yeah. been to Washington? Uh, in Seattle. Yeah. Okay, but I, so haven't, you I haven't gone out to explore. It. Yeah. I've seen it, but yeah, it's not like up front. One day, one day. <laughs> yeah, and so I was I was probably twenty miles um, east of Seattle in the Snohomish County of Washington. So it was like the foothills of the Cascade Mountain Range, and I was living at this river house. It was right on the river, maybe like I don't know, a hundred meters walk through these small woods that that um, are right next to a huge farm, a dairy farm, and I. Remember the first time I wanted to go down to the river, I was too scared to do it. And that was so hard for me to admit to myself because I was like, I was a U.S. Marine. I've learned all these cool survival skills. I'm supposed to be like this tough guy male. And I was too scared to walk into the woods right in my backyard. 
And I remember the things that were going through my brain were like, I might get eaten by like a bobcat or killed by a cougar or coyotes (laughs) or wolves or bears. I didn't know what the heck was in there. And it was just this terrifying idea to plunge myself into the unknown like that without proper training or a weapon or anything. And so it showed, it, it made me realize how little I truly understood about the wilderness and it revealed my gaps in knowledge. Um, and my roommate was opposite. He had gone through a full year at the school. And so he was pretty familiar with the area, with, with how things worked to a degree. And, uh, and so he was going to be an apprentice. So he was going to be an assistant instructor for my group going through my first year. And he would go down to the river all the time. And that's when I got my opportunity. I would tag along with him. Mm. And, but I never told him that the reason I was doing that was because <laughs> I was too scared. To yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I would tag along with him. And, um, and then finally, my first year at Alderley started. And I still had the mentality of wanting to just take these skills and then become an archaeologist. And we went to this place called the Oregon Dune System. And um, it's right off the coast near Reedsport, Oregon. And it's this, it's what I imagined the Sahara looks like. And with, except with the exception that if you were to walk west long enough, you would hit the ocean, the Pacific Ocean. And that in this weird Sahara looking dune system, at the top of these massive dunes were these tree islands. And it was the most remarkable thing I'd ever seen. It was absolutely breathtaking and beautiful. And I had this instructor named Chris. And to, in my opinion, after years and years of doing this, he embodied what I thought was an ideal naturalist, what everyone who wants to be a naturalist should strive to be. And I'll explain that later if you want. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was very quiet, though. He was very quiet, and the language he would use was very sophisticated. But he would explain himself what he meant, too. So it wasn't like he'd be like, oh, this is a blah, blah, blah. And people would be like, what? And then move on. You know, He would explain mm-hmm. himself. Um, and so we got to decide which instructors we wanted to go out with. And then they would lead us on like these little like forays through the dune systems. And I was like, oh, I want to go with Chris because he's so knowledgeable just from the few weeks I've known him. And and I was just curious too, because he had also said, we're not going to walk more than a mile today. And I knew we were going to be out for like eight hours. So I was like, no way. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, let's see if this is true. I'm curious, like, what does that mean to him? And, um, and so there was me and like, two or three other people who decided to go with Chris because everyone else wanted to really hit the ocean because I was like the charismatic thing to do. And I was like, nah, I'll get there maybe tomorrow or something with another group. And he kept true to his word. We walked less than maybe 400 meters in eight hours. And what he would do is he would walk, he'd find something like a coyote track or a weird plant or some insect or a tree. And he would just vomit an encyclopedia's mm. worth of information about this one thing. And I remember when he was doing this, I was in a trance. It was like I didn't even know what was going on around me in the world anymore. I was just so focused and observed in absorbing all this amazing knowledge he had. And by the end of the day, I couldn't take in any more information. It was too much for me. I was just like, this is this is crazy. Yeah. 
And I remember I walked up to the top of the sand dunes to get back to the campsites where we were all at. And I was just looking out over the dunes and the sun was setting. And I just thought to myself, I don't think I can be an archaeologist anymore. I think I need to be a naturalist. Like, this is what I want to do. I want to go out into the wilderness and I want to show people what I see so that they can see it too. Because I remember it felt like, it felt like almost like a rebirth. Like I was seeing the world for the first time and it was just, it was so remarkable that it completely changed the way I thought about things in a single day. And, and that's when I decided I just had to be a naturalist. And it wasn't until years later when I went to Wilderness Awareness School, which is a sister school to All Belief doing their year-long program, which at the time was called the Anake program, but now it's called the Immersion. Um, So I took that year-long program and it was there that I realized not only do I want to be a naturalist, but I want to teach these things to people because I was helping some students who had never done this before in my class learn a lot of um, bushcraft skills because wilderness awareness school is more focused on the awareness and nature connection and not so heavily on the the hard skills as we would call them and so i started just training like two or three people and i remembered i loved doing it it was so fun to just show these people these things and i was like okay that's what i gotta do i gotta become an instructor in this now and yeah and that's how i ended up doing it i just fell in love with teaching. Yeah. And that's really awesome because it's, it just goes to show that you had an interest in something very young. And I think a lot of people, they seem to forget the things that they loved when they were younger, or, you know, they put it away because they have to follow this route of, Oh, I got to do this. And I got to be this because somebody else told me I had to, and you decided, you know, I'm going to continue to explore that even if you know, if your mom disapproves or whoever in society disapproves of it, it's like, you're still kind of exploring it in different ways. And you're still trying to tap into different activities that could potentially lead you to what it is that you were looking for. But I I just appreciate that you still went and explored with like an open mind to be like, okay, let me just see if this is going to work. Yeah. And then after you do it, you're like, okay, yes, this is getting me closer or no, nah, this is actually not okay. So let me go back to the drawing board and at least kind of narrow things down and cut out the things that seem related to that and, and maybe check out a different avenue. But you still kept going is the thing. I feel like a lot of people will start something, then they stop completely because it didn't work out. And they think mm-hmm. that that's the end of the journey. When in reality, no, that's just one step closer to where it is that you're trying to go, even if it feels like it's in the wrong direction. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so teaching is a completely different skill set than just being a student. So how, how have you, how have you really learned to like tap into understanding your students' abilities, way or your students' ways of learning? How is it that you've been able to you know, just teach and, you know, personalize it to the individual versus just generalizing the teachings? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I actually thought about that maybe a couple of years ago when I wanted to continue to find better ways to teach people. Um, I think that journey for teaching really started with Chris. Um, 
when I was going to Alderleaf, we had that apprenticeship program and its purpose was to help you learn how to teach these skills. And I was not very wowed with the apprenticeship program based off my apprentices that I had. And I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that it was kind of like, there wasn't a lot of structure to it. And I think it all depended on your personality too. Like I think my apprentice year, they were there because they wanted to just experience the magic all over again, instead of really diving into that teaching role. And I remember when I did the apprenticeship, um, I realized early on that if I wanted to get better at these things, one way to do that was through teaching because you can't show something to someone unless you have a very deep understanding of how it works. Um, and so an example of that would be like bow drill. I mean, mm-hmm. you can be good at bow drill and be a terrible teacher at it and, and just have no idea how to be able to translate what the heck is going on to someone else. Mm-hmm. And so I think for me, Chris really helped me out in the ways that like, as a great mentor, he would criticize me often and not in a bad way. He'd give me good critiques. He'd be like, Hey, you know, when you're in a group setting, if there's a strong sun, don't have the students with the sun in their eyes, you know, make the sun go in your eyes. And I was like, Oh, that's a cool little tip. And he would offer these little tiny things over and over again to help me be able to start to um, fine tune what I was trying to learn. And I remember one day he had said, um, he had affirmed kind of what I believed. He was like, you know, if you ever want to get better at this stuff, first you got to see it, have someone teach you it, and then you got to do it for a while. And then you have to teach it yourself. And when you teach it yourself, it helps cement everything together. I was like, yeah, that's kind of what I've always thought, but you said it better. <laughs> so I was like, great, thanks. <laughs> thanks <laughs> and, <man. laughs> um, <laughs> and so that really started the journey for learning how to teach. And then when I was um, at Alderleaf and Wilderness Awareness School, one of the things they would do is they'd take us to youth classes. And I remember the first time I taught a youth class, I was terrified. I was like, <laughs> I don't know how to deal with kids. Like, I don't know anything about kids. I can yeah. empathize with adults. Teaching adults was where I started with this journey. And it was easy because I could empathize with them. And I think mm-hmm. to answer your question in short, empathy, I think, is the answer to being a good teacher. And I and with adults, it's like, yeah, I get it. I understand where you're coming from because I was there at one point. And so let me show you what helped me figure this out. Um, and so being able to empathize with adults because I took that journey as an adult made it so much easier. But with kids, I was just like, I have no clue. I've never carved when I was a kid. I didn't bow drill as a kid. So I have no idea how to manipulate your body or even how to talk to you to understand this. And so what helped me was watching people teach kids and then watching how the kid responded to what they were teaching. So I had this friend, he was an army ranger, real tough guy, awesome dude, Um, horrible with kids, great with adults, horrible with kids. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember we were, um, this is when I was an apprentice. So what his class had to do was they had to all come up with a lesson plan for the day for this group of kids and then implement it. And everyone had their own roles. And I remember one of his roles was gathering everyone's attention. And he (laughs) hopped up on this bench 
and he called them all to attention. He just like yelled at all of them and they all like shook out of fright. And he was like, you need to pay attention to everything that's going on or I will PT you to death with push-ups. <laughs> and one of the kids was like, I don't want to die. <laughs> I was just like, what is going on right now? And that's <laughs> so not the way like, to do it. <laughs> yeah. I was just like, great. That's not how you do it. <laughs> so I learned yeah. something from that. <laughs> um yeah but that was just oh, super okay. funny and i love that guy he's an amazing instructor just with kids i would say he needs some <laughs> but um so yeah my first approach was just to watch people and i really would watch the people who had been with kids for a long time and the first thing i noticed was that they would speak in a certain way they didn't speak like they were trying to be condescending to the child or or trying to dumb it down really they spoke to the kids with confidence and they spoke very directly and they broke it down in a way that wasn't condescending and i was like okay that seems to be working a lot with these people Mm -hmm. and then i remember one day someone was like you know if you're ever having trouble with a child and they're just not doing what you're asking to do you have to ask yourself what is part of the basic needs that's not being met first and I was like, what, what do you mean? I'm like, if they got to go to the bathroom, they're not going to listen to you. If they're hungry, they're not going to listen to you. If if you, they're not being um, hydrated, they're not going to listen to you. I was like, oh, yeah, I guess that makes sense because I don't listen to people when that happens. <laughs> and so then I realized, oh, you know what? I can empathize with these kids if I get into the child mindset and remember what it was like to be a kid. And that was really hard to do that because I think in our Western culture, we're trained so hard to leave the childhood behind and grow into this adult mindset. And I think personally that that's where we go wrong in a lot of education. I think if you can find that child's mindset, it's so much easier to empathize with them. And then once you're empathizing with them, you're like, yeah, it's like really hard to push your knife through a piece of wood. Let me find a way where you could do it if you're struggling with that. I think that allowed me to really start tapping into being able to figure out ways for kids to start learning the stuff. And one of my favorite quotes from Einstein, and I'm probably not quoting it perfectly, but it essentially was, if you can't teach something to a six-year-old, then you don't know it well enough. And I really have hung on to that my entire time teaching. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to figure out ways to teach all these very, what we would call advanced hard skills to children, because then that's going to make it that much easier to teach it to an adult. And I found that to be so true. Uh, whenever I've taught kids bow drill, when I taught it to an adult, I was like, oh, you understand more. I can speak a language that's more relatable between the two of us. And so now I can relate it to you more easily. Um, and so, yeah, I think the biggest things that really helped me to start understand teaching was just becoming empathetic with whoever I am teaching and just trying to figure out what is it like to be in this person's position and how can I make it work for them? And so that's, that's just been my teaching philosophy ever since. Yeah. I think that that's really great to hear because that little tip can just easily transfer into everyday life with how people talk to their own children, you know, instead of yelling and this and that, like both my parents were military. So growing up, really? I definitely had, yeah. So I definitely had a, <laughs> and we're Puerto Rican too. So we just have 
a lot of passion. And then, you know, when my parents are in the military and all that, it's like that PT, that like stern stuff. Like I heard a lot of that. So I feel that. But I find that that obviously isn't the best way to communicate um, Mm -hmm. to a child or even to another adult, because when that is happening and you're being yelled at, you're going in the defensive and you're like, well, like I'm, I'm either shutting down or I'm going into the, like the defensive Mm -hmm. uh, in that fight or flight mode. And especially with kids, I think that the education system could be a little better if we, um, you know, just tailored the teaching more to how the kids would learn. And even just in the way that you communicate, like you just said, just kind of simplifying things, remembering the basic needs and just trying to communicate in a way that is a bit more like passive and streamlined and not like one extreme or the other. But even now as adults, it seems like you can still use that and almost avoid conflict because you're able to talk to them in a way that is very passive. And it's just like, look, this is why we have to do this, or this is why I disagree with that. And it, I feel like it would um, cut down on a lot of the, the arguments or the conflicts or a lot of the, uh, yeah, just that negativity that's going on in our society today where people are just like, Oh, I can't talk to you because you're like this and you're like this and jumping to conclusions about different things. It's always one extreme versus the other. When in reality, we're all in the middle. It's just that we need to find that conduit to express these thoughts a little more clearly and simply for everybody. So again, using that empathy to be like, okay, I understand why you see that because you've lived a certain life and you have this perspective, but here's yeah. my perspective. Like, this is what I'm trying to tell you. So did you find that after teaching kids that you prefer teaching kids more than adults now, or are you just kind of in between? Do you have a preference now? Yeah. You know, you're, I've had been asked that question so many times and I think when I first started doing this, my answer would always be, I prefer adults because adults for me could learn faster and could do more. Um, and I think over time, as I've been teaching kids more and more, I realized kids can learn fast too. It's just that you have to change your approach on how you do it. Um, and so I think now as of, of the, this me, this current me, I'd say I love teaching all ages. And my reasoning is because I still agree with myself that like adults can take things further because in in some skills, there is safety in mind. Like there's just some things I'm not going to be able to do with kids. Um, And then also physical strength. There are some things that adults can do faster because they are physically stronger and have better motor control. Um, But then when I think of like teenagers, I was terrified of teaching teenagers because I remembered what I was like as a teenager. I was like, I was an asshole. I know. Like, <laughs> I always had like a random attitude too. I get it. Right? Yeah. It was just like, there's no reason for me to be a jerk, but I totally was. And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do with these kids. Like, am I just going to like lose my mind and get angry all the time with like the sass and things like that? And I found with teenagers that they were often a little bit more difficult to inspire because they're in that angsty period where like, oh, they, they're not, it's not cool to do that kind of thing. Or they're, they're being judged by their peers. Even if they're not being judged by their peers, they feel that yeah. intensity of that judgment that they create in their own head. And so it was often difficult to inspire them, but I took that as a challenge. 
And I was like, cool. I just have to figure out a new way to do it. And when I learned how to do that, it was like, oh, I just like opened up this whole new realm and it's super fun now. Mm. And so the challenge is that it's harder to inspire teens, but it does create new creative ways for me to do that. But the teens were also physically stronger, had finer motor skills, and um, a lot of things were brand new for them. And so I would often love teaching teens because they could be more philosophical about things. You can have more interesting conversations and do more skills. And so I, I love teaching teens in that way. And they push my edges. I used to hate having my edges pushed until I realized, oh, that's like where all the good growth is happening. So maybe mm-hmm. I actually need more of that. <laughs> <laughs> and then with younger kids, like preteens from like nine to 12, that age group, I really fell in love with because they're on the cusp of becoming they're like on the cusp of becoming teens so they haven't quite gotten that teen angst yet they're they're starting to become more fluid in their body motions but they also still have that childlike sense of wonder it hasn't been squashed out by the school system or by parents or anything like that it still exists pretty deeply And so it's a lot easier to inspire them. And again, since they're a little bit older and they're coming into their bodies more, they can do quite a bit as far as skills go. And then when it comes to younger kids, like anywhere from like six to nine, that age range, I love teaching them too, because the world is just so foreign to them. I remember I had a little girl in my group of like 10 kiddos, this is like COVID period time. So like I was out on my own with these 10 and she wouldn't talk to anyone. She was super shy and quiet. I would maybe on a good day, get one or two words from her, like a yes or a no. And she hated getting dirty. She wouldn't sit on the ground. She was constantly terrified of everything around her and she didn't have any friends Um, She knew one of the other girls because I guess they went to public school together, but they weren't really connecting a lot because the other girl was one of the loudest kids I knew. Just everywhere, bouncing off the wall, making friends with people, just doing all the craziest stuff that I was constantly like, hey, chill out. (laughs) Um, And so this kiddo was the complete opposite. And I remember uh, one day I just picked up this little piece of chert and it had like an inclusion in it, like a little quartz inclusion. So it's kind of cool looking. And Can you explain what chert is for people who don't know yeah. what that is? Um, so chert is a type of rock that um, is essentially just a sedimentary rock that accumulated underwater for millions of years. Um, and it just compacts together to make this beautiful silica rich rock that if you hit it right, it flakes off these beautiful sharp flakes. And it was used by our ancestors to make stone tools. And the park I worked or yeah, the park that I predominantly worked out of had tons of chert everywhere growing out of the limestone. And so I picked up a little piece and I showed it to her. I was like, isn't this like really pretty? Like, look at all those little quartz crystals in there. And she immediately just like took it from me. I was like, great, you can keep it. Do you want to look for rocks with me? And then she just shook her head. Yes. And we just started picking up little rocks everywhere. And by the end of the day, she had like 30 rocks and she put them all in her backpack. <laughs> and Imagine going home with 30 them. rocks. <laughs> yeah, right? I never did that as a kid. I never picked up rocks. Was that one of the things you did? 
Uh, I mean, I would throw rocks. I was all over the place as a kid, so. Oh, really? <laughs> I don't know yeah, that I, me. like, stood there looking at the rocks, though, but. <laughs> well, she fell in love with them. She wanted rocks. And her mom came up to me one day. I was like, my kid's backpack is always, like, 10 to 15 pounds heavier by the end of the day. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I know. She liked rocks. And over time, as we kept looking for rocks, she would start coming to class, and I would notice it wouldn't be like this battle with her parent to get out of the car. It was like, oh, we're here finally. And she'd like run over to start looking for rocks. And finally, I remember one day she bolted over to me and I got my like first major sentence. She was like, Mr. James Michael, can we please look for rocks? I was like, whoa, yeah, let's look oh for rocks. Thanks for, like, thanks for talking to me finally. <laughs> and it was amazing to watch from the beginning of the year with that, she was, I think, seven years old to watch her go from this quiet, reserved child who was terrified of nature to someone who was making friends. She had like three friends by the end of the year. She was jumping in mud, playing games, looking for random things. Her her love and interest evolved from rocks to like tracks and bugs and things. And I was just like, that's what this is all about. Like we've yeah. I, we've helped awaken this thing, this primal human, and now they're just having fun and loving nature. And, um, and so when it comes to the little ones, that ability to be able to inspire them from almost nothing, from just a little tiny nudge, I love that. And then when it comes to preschoolers, I mean, that goes even further. I mean, you could look at a butterfly and be like, oh my God, and they'll all just like lose <laughs> their minds. And so, um, yeah, I just love working with all the age groups because I feel like each one of them comes with their own separate challenges that are fun to solve. And they all come with their amazing qualities as well that help me grow as an instructor as well. Because I can apply what I learned from one group all the way to another group. Because even if it doesn't look the same, how they're presenting in their challenges, often the way you solve it is the same. Hmm. Okay. And so the way that you solve that is the same. Now, would you say that the way that you inspire each group is similar? Um, yeah, I would say so. I mean, you got to tweak it a little bit. Like, I think my first thought when you said that was storytelling. Um, I used to think storytelling was silly. And I also was scared of it because I'm a pretty shy person. I don't like public speaking at all. Um, but I fell in love with it when I just started doing it over and over. And the stories just became a part of me. And, um, but yeah, at first I was just like, storytelling is terrible. It's terrifying. It's also, it feels condescending to tell a story to an adult. And <laughs> then it, it like occurred to me like, oh, we do storytelling all the time. It's like movies, video games. Yeah. It's all storytelling, books, it's storytelling. And so like with kids to inspire them about like Bojo, we'd still tell a story about like how fire was found and how a Bojo kit was made by like animals or some, something weird, you know, to like really get them the juices flowing and that excitement going. And then I finally was doing a, um, a connecting to nature class. And what it was, it was, it was called nature's mentor class. And I decided to tell a story to adults and I was so nervous about doing it. And I, as I was telling it, I realized for a split second when I pulled myself out and I was like, hold on, just like, what's going on while I'm telling this? They were all just quiet, like children listening to the story. 
I was like, oh, cool. It works on adults too. <laughs> and then I, again, going back to that empathy, I thought about it. I was like, yeah, like I like it when I hear a story on TV or something, or I listen to a podcast that's storytelling. Like, of course they love it. I like it. And I just had to realize that. Um, and so, yeah, I feel like a lot of the ways you can inspire kids also inspire adults. Kids love carving. They love making things out of wood. Most of the time what they're doing is they'll just like carve the bark off a piece of wood. And that's like all they need to satiate that, <laughs> that feeling. <laughs> but then you can like take carving, tweak it a little and show an adult, like we can make an otlatl or carve a face or carve What's a dinosaur. An want. Uh, oh, okay. Great question. So, uh, um, <laughs> So an otlatl um, is a ancient hunting weapon that allowed us to use projectiles. So essentially, mm-hmm. if you think of a bow and arrow, they had this dart that looks like an arrow that was like anywhere from four to eight feet long, which is massive. And it would sit on, actually, you know what? I have, <laughs> I keep this stuff around my room. Here's an otlatl. <laughs> so uh, here's the handle. And then you have this curved branch, you have a counterweight, and then you have this little spur right here where the the dart has a little um, hole on the end of it that would sit on the spur. And this would, you would, you, what you do is you're, you're holding it like this and you, you launch it forward and you're using leverage to throw the dart even further than you can throw a spear. And, um, a modern equivalent, actually, you know, those dog throwers with the tennis balls in them. You ever seen anyone yeah. use that at a park before? Yeah. That's a lot waddle. Yeah. It's just for a tennis ball though. It's the same concept. And so essentially all it's doing is it's creating extra leverage by extending your limbs and allowing you to pro- propel that projectile way further. And the advantage of this for our ancestors was now we are able to kill our prey from a further distance, which increases our safety. And, and I mean, you have to also think about the animal's perception. It has its buffer zones where it feels safe. Um, and if we as humans enter that buffer zone, they're either going to run or defend themselves. But now we can create this tool that allows us to stay outside their safety buffer zone and still get at them, which is revolutionary. It completely hmm. changed yeah. the game for us. Um, so what was I saying? Otlatl. Yeah. So people can make otlatls. Like you can, carve yeah, you that can create a lot of it. stuff. It's super cool. Yeah. I mean, I'm getting that myself awesome. excited about it. Just talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, what's your, what do you think is your favorite thing to make? Because I think the mm. other aspect of survival that people may not realize is during that course that we had taken, and I'm sure the courses that you've taken, yeah. it's all about using what you have in nature. You create the tools, you go outside with literally nothing, and then you just survive with what's there. So what mm-hmm. would you say is your favorite thing to make without any uh, any type of external tools to help you do it? Yeah. Hmm. I'd say there's two things. I mean, that's even that's really hard. I love it all. I love to make everything. I'm, I very much enjoy a holistic feeling as far as the skill set goes. But if I had to narrow it down to at least two things, and I'll explain why it's two. One would be fire, and the other one would be stone tools. And I choose fire as my first one because just making a fire, even with a match, is like 
super cool. Like you, it's just this, it's this thing that can cook your food. It helps you with all of your hierarchy. It cooks your food. It can boil your water. It can provide warmth and shelter. It keeps the dark things at night away from you. It, it provides warmth and comfort. It draws communities together. It's this thing that can do so many other things. And it's so difficult to do it out on the land with no tools. It requires a massive amount of knowledge about tree species, um, about understanding where to find certain things on the landscape. So you have to understand how to read the landscape. You have to know stone tools. Um, You have to be able to have proper techniques. So this is something you have to practice over and over with a good kit before you even try to do it off the land with nothing. Um, yeah, it just, it requires understanding meteorology. You want to know what the weather conditions are like. If you're, if it's really humid out, you have to know how to prepare and take care of your tinder and, and set up everything as far as like preparation for like kindling and, and fuel. So it requires a vast amount of knowledge. And I think for me, the challenge is what I love about it. I love a good challenge. And so fire for me with nothing out there, that's a challenge. And I love that because it's also different wherever you go. One place might be great for bow drill, whereas another place you're like, nah, I'm going to do hand drill. Or another place you're like, you know what, screw it, I'm going to do fire plow. I have the materials here for it. Or in even another place, it might be like, great, we got lots of bamboo. Let's do a fire saw. And so the fact that there's a lot of ways you can do it without any gear is also super interesting and fun because then you can play around with it. And then my second thing is um, stone tools. I love making stone tools. And I think that harkens back to my archaeological background because stone tools is kind of my gateway for all this as far as the bushcrafting. Uh, One of my favorite things to study was lithic um, analysis. And and what that is, is looking at a stone tool in an archaeological site and then asking yourself, how was it made? What was it used for? Um, And then... Uh, like what is its materials? Where did it come from? Things like that. What was the the knowledge prior to this that led to the creation of this tool? And so for me, stone tools is really cool because it's just like it, it's another gateway thing that can do so many things. You can make blades to carve um, wood. You can make awls to be able to punch through leather. You can create burins and and scrapers to be able to peel things to be able to to flesh a hide. Um, its versatility is just absolutely amazing. And the fact that stone tools date back around like 2.3 million years, it's just part of us. It's, it's, and so is fire, but not as long as stone tools. Stone tools literally made us who we are today. And that is just like such a cool thing to feel in your blood. Like, I don't know, it makes me, it makes me feel closer to my ancestors. And I think that's, just like super cool in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, no, I, I love that. I think uh, everybody, <laughs> I feel like a lot of people would get really excited about fire. Everybody is always like, yeah, I want to make a fire and this and that, but it is really hard to maintain, to build, especially when it's like, all right, guys, <laughs> go create a fire when it's <laughs> raining. And it's like, shit, <laughs> everything's wet. How do I maintain it? And even just, you know, doing the Tinder bundles, trying to find the dry stuff. Like you've seen me get frustrated. Your first overnight, wasn't it? (laughs) Yeah. The first one. Well, yeah. I think we had a few rain nights. We had a few rainy days. Oh, oh Mm -hmm. my gosh. 
Well, <laughs> I, I always joked with you. I was like, this is why abandonment issues take place when you like lead us out into nowhere and just like, all right, you're here for the night. Bye. <laughs> but I think a lot of it was just like, wait, is this really happening? Like, are we literally just, were we just left here? We're, we're supposed to build a shelter and stay here overnight? Like how, I think it took everybody a little bit of time to be like, okay, wait, what, what is happening right now? <laughs> And we ended up just trying to figure out like, okay, where should we make the shelter? What should we do? And and it's really interesting because I kind of like sat back a little bit and I waited to just watch what everybody else was kind of doing and thinking. And it was just interesting to see the people who would just dart off and do their own thing and other people would kind of talk. And then there was always like another person who's trying to delegate, but don't, nobody's listening. <laughs> oh my, that's just- my favorite person, by the way. <laughs> Yeah. And I was just like, okay, you know, I I would go and I'd try to like, after, after seeing kind of like the roles that people take, I would go and like, like try to talk to some of these people, but then at the same time and be like, okay, well, this is what we have to do. Right. Okay. So these people are clearly looking over there. You can stay here and hold the ground. I'm going to just go over there just because I want to get away from everything to just process. Yeah. Um, but then after that, it's just like, okay, just trying to get everybody on the same page. And what makes that challenging is I didn't know these people, like these people yeah. were just other students in the class. I had very little interaction with them. I didn't know how they were, how they thought, what their experiences were. So a lot of it was just us trying to figure things out right away. Uh, and just even trying to come up with a basic place of like, where should we have our shelter? I think we ended up picking one place and then moving to another one and we bounced around a little bit, but eventually we got together and we were able to create the shelter and people seem to naturally go towards the things and activities that they were good at, or at least were interested in. Yeah. Um, So some people were like, yeah, I'm going to go do the fire. I'm going to go gather wood and do this and that. And I was like, um, I'm going to go build the shelter. I'm just going to wander. And then I, I like to try to build the shelter and like come up with the ties and figure that stuff out. So it was really cool to be able to pair up with a few other people to be like, okay, let's put this shit together. And then they're off in the woods and they're finding like sheet metal and just random pieces, like bed framing material. And I'm That's like, right. y'all found sheet metal. I forgot about yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> It was so random, but I was like, we're going to use that, like throw that on the, on the roof. And it worked out. I mean, nobody really slept in the shelter because it was too far from the fire, but it was, it was still good. I I enjoyed it. That's awesome. (laughs) But I mean, for you, you've been obviously through a ton of different classes and you've had a lot of different types of experiences throughout your journey with this. What would you say was like the most challenging part to the, well, okay, I'm going to break this down into two. What do you think was the most challenging thing that you've experienced? And what do you think was an experience that you had where you were almost at a point of giving up and being like, you know what, forget this. Like, I, I don't know Ooh. why I'm even bothering with this. Yeah. Um, hmm. I think often when I, Yeah, that's a great question. I feel like the answer that most people would expect is like, oh, one of my greatest challenges was going off into the woods (laughs) on a survival trip. But actually, that was probably one of the easiest challenges um, because I loved doing it. I think 
one of the greatest challenges I ever had was my own ego. That was hard to overcome. And I'm still constantly dealing with it all the time. I think, I think as, as, as Western culture, we are constantly taught to be the best and to, and to just climb over others in order to achieve these certain goals and lofty dreams. And I remember, I think back to my military days, that was very much true. Like it was considered a brotherhood, but I very much remember constantly being on the defensive, thinking about promotions and then having to outdo each other and prove that you were better than this person. And I definitely remember doing that in high school a lot too, when it came to grades and, and, and teams for sports. And so I think that mentality carried with me to the survival world. And the one thing about nature and wilderness skills is um, you can't fake it. You can't fake it till you make it. You either know it or you don't. And so it's the great humbler. And um, I think for me, that drive to always be the best helped fuel me as far as learning these skills really well and in depth. But it also was hurtful towards me because it would alienate me from other people. Um as always trying to be the best when in reality, what I should have been doing when I first started these things, I was trying to uplift everyone because at the, at the, the end of the goal, the end goal for me has always been to help others connect to nature. And even though that was the end goal that I would say out loud, I didn't practice it because of that ego. I would always try to outdo others. I always had to be the one to know everything. And because of that, it also led to me creating misinformation when I was at the Oregon Dunes as an apprentice, as an assistant instructor for Alderleaf, that was my second year doing this journey. And Chris allowed me to lead a group on my own. And that was really cool. And that boosted my ego because like, yeah, Chris Bird, the <laughs> top of the pyramid is letting me lead a group. Like, obviously, I'm a badass. <laughs> and I took my group out. And I remember I was teaching them things. And some of it, I actually didn't know. I would talk to them about plants and stuff that like, maybe I knew its name, but sometimes I would just say something about it. That I was like, maybe this is true. There's like, it'd be like hearsay. Like I had no evidence of it, but I would, I would say it as if it was gospel truth. And I remember we came up to this blade of grass on one of these um, tree islands and it had a dead bug exoskeleton shoved on it. And I was like, Oh, over here Ooh. we have, um loggerhead strike sign and they were all like "Ooh, ah like james michael you know so much and i fed my ego even more and i was like yeah you're damn right i know so much like look at this loggerhead strike sign that i found <laughs> and i remember we got <laughs> it was ridiculous but i was like that i was such a punk and i remember we got back to camp at the end of the day and we were all sharing what we had learned in this big circle campfire circle and a lot of people were like, yeah, the strike sign, that was the coolest because like whoever thought there was this crazy bird that would just like impale its victims on sharp things. And I was like very <laughs> proud of myself for having provided that experience for these people and that story, even though it wasn't entirely true. And so Chris then asked me in front of everyone, he was like, how do you know that that was strike sign? Well, no, no, he didn't ask me that first. He asked them. He was like, how do you know that was strike sign? And they're like, oh, because James Michael told us. 
And then he looked at me. He was like, James Michael, how do you know that strike sign? And I was like, because it's a bug impaled on a leaf. Like that's, that's the only logical thing that makes sense. And I was speaking in absolutes from a place of not having deep knowledge of this bird or its behaviors. I only knew one thing about it, but I spoke of it as if I had been studying it myself as a biologist. And he was like, that wasn't strike sign. That was me. I just took a bug and I stuck it on there. And I was like, oh, really? Crap. Oh my gosh. Yeah, he That's just hilarious. It on but he wasn't trying to mislead anybody. He just was, he's just like a dude that was just sticking a bug on a piece of leaf. And he was like, oh let's my think about God. this logically. And he was breaking this down in front of all the students. And I was like, this sucks. Like now my, I'm sweating. I've got like a ball in my throat and I'm angry at him for revealing my, my incompetency. And he was like, let's break this down. Why did you think it was strike sign? I was like, because the bug was impaled on there. He's like, okay. He was like, one of the greatest lessons I have ever learned was if you can't find three good reasons why something is as it is, then you need to study it more before you stop telling people. And again, he was saying this in front of everyone and I was so embarrassed. And, uh, and then I was like, okay, like I got it wrong. Great. And he was like, yeah, I mean, it doesn't make sense logically if you think about it too, even if you didn't know what it was, <laughs> how could a bird... Drilling. Right. He was, just really, he was like, he was like the, the grass is like this tall. It was high. It was probably like slightly higher than my waist. And it was a really thin blade of grass. He was like, how mechanically could the creature have gotten it on there? And I thought about it. I was just like, it couldn't have, like, it makes no sense how this bird could have done it. I was like, right. He's like, you shouldn't always speak with absolute unless you are absolutely sure. And he was like, and sometimes we can feel absolutely sure. And he said, but what we need to understand is we need to have step back and ask ourselves, are we? What are my reasons? And actually do a deep breakdown of what we're thinking. And I wasn't doing any of that. I was just letting my ego trip ride. And and I learned a powerful lesson that day that was like, yeah, I should start thinking about how I present knowledge and not letting the excitement and feeling of knowing everything guide me. And um, I remember I didn't want to talk to him for like two weeks. And then finally the lesson sunk in and I started to realize what he had done for me. And I apologized to him later. And I was like, I get it. And uh, I'm sorry. I was an ass. He was like, whatever. It's fine. And he was like, I knew you could handle it. <laughs> yeah, whatever. And, I already <laughs> forgot about it. <laughs> yeah. It, it like meant nothing to him, but to me, it was like a whole life changing <laughs> event. <laughs> and <Yeah. laughs> I remember thinking later as like, I started mentoring people and teaching and stuff like that. I thought about that lesson with me and it occurred to me that he probably would not have done that with anyone else, but he did it to me because as he said, he knew I could handle it. And I was like, dang that's like masterful mentoring right there like he mm -hmm. understood his student and i also started thinking more about chris as i was becoming more and more uh involved with teaching and it also occurred to me that not once had i ever heard chris talk about himself and mm -hmm. i mean that in a way like he wouldn't be like i'm really good at bow drill I know a lot about birds. He never, ever had to say he knew those things. Through his actions and through his teachings, you just knew it. 
by half, maybe like not even halfway, probably like four weeks into the school year at Alder Leaf, my very first year, everyone in the class knew Chris Bird as one of the most knowledgeable human beings they'd ever met. And he never once ever said that about himself. And I thought about that and I was like, your ego is just a mask for your own insecurities. At least it was for me. And I was thinking like, here's someone who is clearly an expert and they don't have to say a thing. Their actions speak for themselves. And I, it occurred to me that I wanted to be able to do the same thing. I wanted my own actions to speak for themselves. And I thought to myself, well, how can I do that? How did Chris do that? And the answer that I came up with was he obviously put his nose to the grindstone and learned it. And when he learned it, he, then he could actually be able to teach it to others. And he didn't need to let his ego rule it anymore. He just was an expert. And I was just like, that's what I want to do. And so ever since then, ever since I realized those lessons and those things about Chris, I was like, man, I'm starting to see this actually with other people too. Like I would meet master trackers and other naturalists and, and people in other fields too, um, who were the top of their game. And I mean, these were the pinnacle and the, the similarity I noticed between all of them was that they were very humble and they didn't let their eagles, their, the eagles, their egos, um, <laughs> dictate how yeah, they acted. Okay. <laughs> uh, instead they just spoke about what they were talking about with passion because they loved what they were doing. And that was all they needed to say that I'm an expert in this field and for me to trust them. And so that, yeah. So one of the most challenging things for me has been learning how to quell that ego, to do a lot of work on myself, figure out what are my insecurities and why do they exist? And how can I work on those so that I can provide the best teaching experience to others? Because eliminating that ego makes you a better communicator. It helps you become a better at empathizing with others. And it allows you to start seeing the world from a totally different perspective. And, and, and I think that's very important for people. Um, and I think also I noticed as I was on this journey, I started to realize there was like tears of teaching too, like I, or not much as teaching, but like of like someone's growth. And like, I noticed there were people who were just like me. Like I knew this person uh, that I had taught with who had a very large ego, but they were very, they were knowledgeable, but I also noticed the people they were teaching weren't receiving it as well. And I was like, ah, oh, that's what I was doing. I was alienating the people I was trying to teach because I was so absorbed with myself when I should be absorbed with them and what they're trying to learn. And, and so that's just been an ongoing journey for me. And it, I think it will be for the rest of my life because it's just a part of us. And, and I don't think you can ever get rid of your ego because ego is not entirely bad. There's healthy ego, which is propping ourselves up and taking care of ourselves. And there's that unhealthy ego that allows us to corrupt and poison what we're trying to do. And so I've always, I've been constantly trying to work on ever since I learned those lessons from Chris, how do I get rid of the unhealthy ego and how do I um, create a healthier ego to make everyone else's experiences better all around. So that's probably been my biggest challenge, which really doesn't have anything yeah. to do with wilderness survival as a hyper-focus. <laughs> it's just more of a humanity, like a humanity <laughs> thing. <laughs> but, yeah. but nature well, connection. Well, the thing is a lot of people deal with that. 
Yeah. And then what was yeah, the other question you said of, was a, uh, a time I almost gave up? Yes. Um, let's see. I, probably. Hmm. I would have to say a time I almost gave up on all this was when I realized being a naturalist didn't pay well. Money hasn't always been a thing for me. I've never really cared for it. Um, and it still is not a priority as far as life goals and, and missions to like make a lot of money, but it's a reality. We can't exist in Western civilization unless you make money. You have to be able to pay taxes. You have to be able to afford an apartment. You have to be able to get food. I mean, I would love the idea of just going off into the woods and getting a deer and clamming on the coast and growing my own vegetables, but I can't um, because it's not legal. I, I would not own the land and I'm, I'm illegally doing these things. And so I have to integrate. And so that means I have to make money. And when I was going to Alderleaf my third year, I couldn't afford an apartment um, for maybe like three or four months. And so I was living in the woods, uh, deep in the woods under a power line next to this person's property, right on the edge of it, actually. And it was tough. It was tough to try and maintain a balance of civilized and also practicing all these skills like building a shelter and dealing with rain and wild animals. That was not the difficult part. The difficult part was reintegrating into society for me. And, and so I had to get a job. I was working at a Goodwill and I had to park far away from where I was living. And um, at, at one point, a friend of was living with me and he had his teepee. There was this big canvas teepee. And during that summer, he was hanging out with another friend of ours. And so he was almost never there, but his animals were there. He had a, a big useless white dog that would never alert if anything was around. It would just kind of just lay there all day. And he had this ferret that just sat in its cage all day and never got played with. They got fed in water, but they were just like lonely. And so I would play with them. Um, but I remember one night he was hanging out in his teepee and I was living, uh, in this other shelter and he had gotten drunk and at the top of the hill, um, at this property that was adjacent to us, I think like a couple days before, or maybe a week before there had been a sting, a police sting where the person that owned the place turned out to be like some drug dealer with lots of like money. And, and so they were taken to jail. And these people started breaking onto this person's property because there's no one to defend it now and stealing cars mm -hmm. and things from the house. And um, these people that were at the top of the hill were, I think, doing something with his gas line. So I don't know, siphoning gas or something like that. But I remember it had to be like maybe 11 o'clock at night. It was dark and they were at the top of the hill. And they were yelling to each other. One of them had come slightly down the hill to pee. And I was watching all of this. And um, and I knew that they were definitely up to no good. So I had my longbow with an arrow ready to go just in case. Because I didn't know who these people were. And I just wanted to make sure that like 
I, I knew that lots of drug dealers and and these thieves were coming around. So I was like, I'm just going to have something to protect myself just in case. No one knew we were in the woods. And then he came out of his tent and I told him to be quiet. And he was like, what? Like really loud. I was like, shut up, dude. Shut up. What are you doing? And he's like, I can't hear you. What? And he just started yelling and yelling. And then these people at the top of the hill turned their lights in our direction and they started coming down. I was like, Gus, shut up. And I grabbed his shotgun and I put it in his hand. I was like, I don't know what's going to happen, but you're on your own. And then I started going into the woods towards <laughs> these people coming down the hill. <laughs> and um, one of them, the one that got furthest down the hill, he just yelled out, who's down there? And I don't know why I said this. <laughs> now I think it's kind of silly and maybe was a bit ridiculous to say at the time but i was like nobody you want to meet <laughs> and he kind of got startled because <laughs> i don't think he actually expected anyone to be there and so um he turned around and went back up the hill and i think he got kind of startled because i had I, I was really practicing a lot of my scouting skills at the time and i had gotten pretty darn close to him and off to his side where he did not expect to see anyone he was still shining the lights towards the direction of our camp and you couldn't see our camp, but they knew something was there because of my buddy. And, uh, and so that was our first encounter. And so not only was I really poor and dealing a lot with like the stresses of having to go to a job that was in the city and then come back to this place and, and constantly do a lot of upkeep in a primitive way. Um, but now I was dealing with these people on the top of the hill who started making expeditions to find our encampment, which was so annoying. And I was by myself in this because my buddy, again, he would just end up spending his nights at this other guy's house. So he was never around to help defend our things. And I was constantly worried about um, being at work and then having all my precious things taken from me. And I mean, I didn't have a lot, but I still, these things were, were important to me. And I, you know, I had my, my like jewelry and some of my silver and gold in there because I didn't have a home. So I was, everything was there in my, in my shelter. And, and so I was in constant worry about raids on my camp. And, and this sounds like a pirate's adventure or something because it's just absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> and so over, over a period of like two months, maybe once or twice a week, these people would come in the middle of the night and try to find our encampment. And um, a few times I got into aggressive encounters where, I saw one had a gun on him and I shot an arrow at him and I missed. So don't worry, no one died. But I I shot an arrow at this person. <laughs> I hit a tree next to them because they were wielding a gun, quietly trying to find my encampment. And I was like, this is clearly someone up to no good. Um, and, and finally, the last stroke was uh, a TV had been stolen from my buddy's TP, which told me that they had finally made it into our camp and, and stolen things. And I was just like, man, I feel like I'm at rock bottom now. Like I have no money. I have a car that is like, I bought for like 200 bucks and it's falling apart. And I have nowhere to put my stuff. I don't have a home to, to afford to be able to put anything in. And school hasn't even started yet. And I don't even know how I'm going to pay for school. So it was just like a lot of things going on in my mind. And I was just like, maybe this was just a dream and I should just get back to reality get a real job and security, make some money and then find a way to do this as a hobby. And so I would say that was probably one of my lowest points was dealing with all that 
And uh, yeah, and, and what made me not give up was my friend, my really good friend, Nikita, was my saving grace. Um, she had heard, uh, you know how people are like always trying to one-up each other at the workplace, like, oh, I do this and I do that. And um, and these guys <laughs> were talking about like fighting coyotes and stuff. And I didn't know that they were one-upping each other at the point at that point because I wasn't part of the conversation. And I was just nonchalantly like, oh, yeah. Like I remember one time a coyote tried getting uh, into my shelter and I smacked it over the head with a shoe and then it never came back. And, and all of them were like, yeah, you've never done that, blah, blah, blah. And Nikita thought I was joking also. And then the that night when I had told that story to her, that very same night, a coyote did come back into my camp, found one of my shoes and like ripped it up. And I only had the pair of oh shoes. So I came gosh. to work with a, with a shoe that was just torn to shreds with my toes poking out. And, and she was my supervisor at the time. And she was like, what's up with your shoe? And I was like, uh, that coyote came back and got my shoe this time. And she was like, I thought you were joking. You actually smacked a coyote in the head with your shoe. I was like, yeah, I wasn't kidding. And she's like, where do you live? I was like, I told you I live in the woods under a power line. And she was like, nah, you're going to stay with me. And I was very against it at first. Cause my pride, my pride was like, no, I can't accept help from anyone. I have to be independent and take care of myself. And so she had heard that I loved playing this card game called magic, the gathering. And I, I absolutely did love this game. Oh my gosh. I haven't played it in a while. <laughs> Have you played it? Do you know that game? I know of it. I haven't played it. It's it's a fun strategy game that really requires you to do a lot of thinking. And I think so that's what I loved about it. And I love the artwork. But regardless, she knew I liked the game. And her and her husband also played that game. And so she's so clever. She was like, how about you come over for dinner and you play some Magic the Gathering with us? And I was like, okay, I'll do that. And so I came over, had an amazing time. And then she was like, you know, there's a trailer outside of our house that we own that no one lives in. And you could totally have that for like 300 bucks a month. And it's going to be winter. So that might work out nicely for you. And I was just like, ah, like, I don't know. Like, okay, maybe. And I thought about it for a while. And I asked myself, what do I want to do with all this? Like, what is the end game? And I was just thinking about it. I was like, I can't do a nine to five anymore. I just, I can't do it in the sense where I'm just like a drone waiting for to get off at a job that I hate. And I was like, okay, so what do you love? And I was like, well, I love doing this. I love tracking animals. I love making stone tools. I love building fires primitively. And I like teaching people how to do it. And the only way I could continue to do that is if I'm here. That's what made sense for me at the time. And so I was like, all right, I just got to bite the bullet, suck up my pride, and I'll just move in. And that's what saved me. It allowed me to be able to build up money and um, go back to school for my my year, my third year at Alderleaf. And and yeah, so I owe a lot to Nikita for that. And so that was probably the moment where I was almost like, this is not something that's actually sustainable for me. Yeah, that's really nice to see that the universe just kind of helped you out. It's, it's, it's really interesting because when you're so passionate about something and you love something so much, it's like the universe is going to kind of throw you a bone and be like, yeah, I know you want to give up, but let me like extend this grape leaf to you. 
Let me extend that to you so that yeah. you can hold on to something and have a little faith and continue going because this is what you're meant to do, or this is something that you should continue to explore, whether it ends up being what you've always imagined or it ends up leading you somewhere else. Like when you were getting into survival, like survivalism, I don't even know if that's like the right way to say it, but it works. <laughs> yeah, it works. Whatever. I, I just make up words all the time, <laughs> but like you never thought you'd get into teaching, right? Like no, you always thought it would just be something else. Yeah. So it was just a really selfish thing when I started. <laughs> but I think a lot of people get into things like that. You know, a lot of people deal with their egos and they, I mean, like I do, everybody does. Everybody deals with an ego to some extent, whether they are, whether it's at, applied at work or in the household or amongst their friends, like, yeah, I'm the shit. Cause I do blah, 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 blah. But <laughs> a lot of people, you know, including myself, it's like, we all have to take that a little sip of like, um, I was going to say a little bite of humble pie. You know, we, we all need that. And that's something that it's not just you struggling with it. It's literally everybody. And it's true. It sometimes feels like we, we take those things on because we don't exactly know what we want to do with ourselves or, you know, we don't exactly mm -hmm. know how to apply that energy or that, um, yeah. Or that like, anxious, like energy of being like, I, I know I need to do something, but I don't know what it is and they don't know yeah. where to apply it to. So they just stick to what feels comfortable. And so it's like stepping out of your boundaries and doing those things is really important because you learn so much about yourself. And so here, you know, you're, you've gone through all that. You've, um, you've lived in the trailer and then from the trailer, you ended up going where after that? From the trailer, I finally school. got an apartment. <laughs> nice. See, so then like you're moving, you're moving around, you're <laughs> yeah. like going with the flow. <laughs> you yeah, you've moved around quite world. a bit. <laughs> no, and I don't mean to say that like in a um, like a derogatory way or anything. I'm not trying to like <laughs> yeah. talk down or anything, but like it, it's just. I just appreciate that you've been able to share a lot of those intimate details because not everybody would be open to talking about those things and those struggles. You know, everybody's yeah. always trying to put up this picture of, no, my life is perfect. I don't have to deal with this or I don't have to deal with any negative things or my life is perfect. I can handle everything and I'm in control and this and that. But in reality, a lot of people are not. You're going to go through those challenges. You're going to go through low points and then eventually move up further to find your footing. I mean, I think we all just need a little support every once in a while. So I really appreciate that your friend Nikita, was it? It was like yeah. there for you. Yeah. No, yeah. She, it's important. <laughs> I think that's hard for people to admit is like they need help. And that was really hard for me. That's another challenge of what I've gone through is saying uh, I need help. Yeah. I, everybody. We can all, we can all use a little more help in our lives, but it's great because you find community and you find the people that will help you at some point. Somebody is going to extend their hand to help out, even if it's just like a little thing, whether it's like a little yeah. piece of advice or yeah, like a, a bigger gesture like that, you know, sometimes we just need to bite the bullet and be like, okay, yes, I will accept your help. Yeah. So is there anything that you would like to share 
with our listeners, any other inspiring tips or any words of advice for anybody who is maybe in that transitional phase of being like, I really want to get into this, but I don't know, or, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I'm thinking of like, what were some things that helped me figure that out? I think my first and biggest tip uh, or, or a thing, my first thing that I would give out to people uh, that I wouldn't say is purely just for like the naturalist mindset is being able to say, I don't know. It's liberating to just yeah. finally admit you don't know something. I think when I finally learned how to say, I don't know, it allowed me to accept other possibilities instead of creating a story in my mind and then trying to make everything in my life fit around that story, even though it didn't. Um, so saying I don't know is a big thing that I, I I would definitely say has helped me a lot in my life. And then as far as like, if, if you're ever in that transitional period, I feel like for me, things that have really helped are trying to envision what the end goal could look like. There have been many times on this journey where I was just like, I don't know what I'm doing anymore. I, and it's hard because... There are some career paths or things that people want to do that there is no established way to get there. And so often you have to pave your own path. And I think, especially for like the, what I'm trying to accomplish, there is no path. It, like People who have made it to the top in this field have done it in so many different ways. And so... And, and those different ways stem from a lot of like their environment or their personality, or maybe they just got lucky. And so I feel like you can't just be like, well, here's a book, read it and you'll get there. And so I think for me, I had to constantly just sit down and say, okay, James Michael, what is a vision you have that you want to see in the future? And I would just sit there in an armchair <laughs> and sometimes this would take hours where I just sit there and I would just like zone out to another thought, but try to reel it back in. And I'd be like, oh, you know what? Here's a vision. I want to like be in the woods with people just talking about animal tracks. It's like, great. That sounds super fun. And I love that idea. How do I get there? How do I meet that vision? And it's like, okay, great. Let me start writing this down. I'm someone who is a visual learner often. So what I like to do, and it's not easy for me because I hate writing which is so funny because I write all the time. Mm -hmm. um, I have to <laughs> take what's in my head and organize it in front of me so that it's easier for me. And the beginning process of that is so hard because it's just chaos in my head. And so when I take that chaos and I put it on the paper, now I visually see the chaos. And I'm just overwhelmed sometimes. But I just keep reminding myself, it's like, okay, take little baby chunks. So, okay, here's the chaos. I put it on the paper. Stop. Hang out for a little bit. Come back to it later when you're not overwhelmed. And then I'll come back and I'll look at what I got. I was like, great, cool. What are some patterns I see here? It's like, okay, great. Tracking. I love tracking. Well, why don't I make a tracking column? Like, what, is it, what does a tracking column look like? So I'll just put the word tracking at the top. It's like, great. What do I mean by that? It's like, oh, well, you know what? I need to take classes for tracking. So I write classes for tracking and then I'll start looking up schools that teach it or no, or, or figuring out who's in my area that teaches it. And just so like taking little chunks at a time and transferring what's in my head to the paper allowed me to start breaking down my thoughts and organizing them in a way that made sense to me. 
and allowed me not to be overwhelmed. Um, and so I feel like the biggest first step for me was just like, I had needed to envision a purpose and an idea that I can latch onto and start breaking down and figuring out how do I get there. And I also had to realize that sometimes that vision changes. I remember when I first got into this, my vision was I wanted to have my own TV show like Survivor Man because that's what inspired me first. I was like, how cool to be to take someone like Chris Bird and then have them on a TV show just vomiting all this knowledge to people. And that was the vision. And it took me a good distance. But as I followed the vision, I learned more. And I realized, well, that actually won't work. And so then I had to stop and think of a new vision. And then I started following that. And then eventually that petered off to a dead end. I was like, well, you know what? I learned even more. What's my newest vision? And so it's a constantly going back to the whiteboard and thinking, what's the new vision and how can I get there? So that that would be my my best advice to anyone transitioning through that period is just come up with visions and then organize and then realize sometimes it's not what you think it is. <laughs> yeah. That's always the fun part when it's like, Oh yeah, this is actually okay. <laughs> I was wrong, but I guess this is what I'm meant to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. And I mean, you're still writing, right? Like, um, are you still working yeah. on that book? I mean, that's a vision that I just realized I I think I told you I was writing a book, right? Yeah. Yeah, um, I want to see it. <laughs> oh, I said I could well, okay, I could so um I could review it if you need it. <laughs> I would love that and it's evolved. I at the time Ooh, was okay. like I want to create a book that teaches people how to do all these skills without having to spend like $80,000 like I did bumping from school to school, from class to class, from person to person, from expert to expert to be able to learn all these skills. And I was like, a book would be the greatest idea. And then as I've been teaching kids and, and moving around and, and learning how other people learn and how they gain their information, it occurred to me, that's old school. <laughs> this is 1940s and 50s mm -hmm. where, where you can buy a book and off the, off the shelf and they're like, okay, this is how I do A, B, and C. And, and my, my, biggest goal again is is to find a way to help people connect to nature because i think the world would be a better place if every household had at least one naturalist um and so i was like well how do you do that that so I, that was my vision and i was like well where what is the road to get there and the book was the first idea and now it's evolved to where i had to revision that because i started typing up the book and i'm like 380 pages in and it occurred to me that That's if good. I want to meet the goal of what I'm trying to do with this book, it's going to be like 5,000 pages by the time I'm done. It's going to have to be series. Oh, wow. I was like, "That's ridiculous! I don't. I, it will take me years to finish all that because I I was typing up the section for fire, and I figured, oh, you know, I look, I, I have tons of survival books behind my head. I read through all these survival books, and their sections on fire are maybe like two or three pages, very basic." which is what inspired me to want to write this book in the first place. Not only is schooling very expensive, but the books that I feel like are provided are basic to a level of, of possibly being detrimental to someone trying to learn it because they feel like if I read this book, that's all there is to it. 
and now I know what the experts know. It's like, whoa, no, you have no idea how deep you can get in a fire. You can write college-level courses that last a year about fire easily and then keep going about that. And so when I started writing the section on fire, I realized I was 80 pages in and I still had more to say. I was like, dang it, this is going to take me forever if I want to do this. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so I started thinking, I was like, do I really want to try to publish this 10 years from now when I've finally written this magnum opus? And I was just like, no, that makes no sense. And then also like how many people are actually reading books anymore? I talk to my, my mm. students all the time. None of them read anymore. Sometimes they'll listen to an audio book, but the things that I'm trying to teach, some of it can be done through audio and some of it just needs to be visual. And, and so it didn't make sense anymore to be a book. And I was like, well, maybe this has to be through a different media. And I started thinking like, what's the best way to do that? And I was like, wait a minute, the internet, everyone has access to it. Anyone and everyone has access to the internet now that lives in, in some sort of Western civilization. And so I thought, great. That's the way I'm going to do it now. So, and so now I've been working on that, trying to figure out a way to put it all out onto a uh, onto the internet. And now, so now I'm, I, I had my vision re, redone and now I'm in the phase of like, okay, what does that website look like? Is it going to be lots of videos? Is it going to be articles? Is it going to be um, like short videos combined with articles? And like, how often do I put things out? So now it's completely changed and I'm learning more as I do it. And it might continue to change. So yeah, that's what's up with that. That's now. exciting. No, I no, I think that it that's is. exciting. Um, because it's true. It's just there's so many ways to receive information. And as you know, um, everybody learns differently. And there are certain mm -hmm. techniques that this is something I always tell people. I'm always like, go explore, go try something new. Because it's one thing to read it. But it's a totally different thing when you actually go to do something. It's like somebody learning how, how to sail and they're just reading yeah. it. And it's just like, oh, yeah, I know how to sail. It's like, no, you don't. Because as soon as you get on the <laughs> boat, you have to learn about the boat itself. You have to learn about the wind. You have to learn about the currents. You have to learn about the material. You have to feel the rope within your hands. You have to like mm -hmm. understand your own body and how it reacts to the different movements of what's happening and how quickly you can quickly, you know, do a knot and, you know, do whatever else. But, you know, it's like so different than what you read in a book. So I totally understand where you're coming from. And like, how can you really break this down for people when they have, when they might not have access to it, or, you know, that's mm -hmm. their only form of education and like, is just through the book, like, how can they really get the message and understand it as experientially as possible? So yeah, I think that right. that's yeah. great that you're going to use different forms of media. I think that'll help different people. And yeah, you know, it, they can complement one another, honestly. Absolutely. I think another thing I would add as a advice, and this is for anyone really who's like trying to make something for the world. This is something that I ran into as a problem is asking yourself, why should anyone care? Because I was also thinking about that. I was like, yeah, if I make this book, like the idea was, Again, so that people who couldn't afford it, mainly people in cities who were living in low income, they couldn't afford it. Great. They could buy a $50 book series and then do it. And that was all well and, and cool. But it's like, but why, why would they care in the first place? Like, why should they? And then you can go into the whole philosophical, well, it's going to save the planet and it's going to um, create all this community. And at the end of the day, why should anyone who's living a nine to five 
who's struggling life, why would they care about all these problems that seem so much bigger than them that they are probably hoping someone else in like the government will take care of? Like that's not their daily struggle. And so the question I also was, is like, how do I make it so that they can realize this will help with the daily struggle? And, and I feel like, again, since the book wasn't, books aren't something that we're, we're flocking towards anymore. If it's an easier access through the internet, it's like, okay, great. Now we made it easier access. So it's, it's something that they might be more willing to do. And then through that, now I have to create ideas like, okay, why should you care about um, trees? That's a great, all right. I need to find a way for people to care about trees because they're so important to us. Um, well, great. Maybe if I show that through wood carving, you're increasing children's dexterity, their, um, their motor functions, their hands are getting stronger. Um, it's just benefiting them physically and mentally because now they're learning how to do complex things with their hands. Um, it's going to help them in so many different ways. How can I find a way to tie in these lessons that they're learning from carving into the public school? So something I've been recently doing is looking at like school requirements. What is the school required mm -hmm. to have this kid learn? And then finding ways to take all these things that bushcrafting can teach us and then integrate it. It's like, great. This is carving and it actually fits some of your criteria here. Let's have them learn it. And then I can pepper in the other things. It's like, great, now I got them interested and I'm showing them that there's use to it in their daily life. And then it's like, well, maybe carving on oak is not as good as carving on maple. So now they're starting to learn about the trees. It's just a little dose, but then it starts to get mm -hmm. that interest going. And so... Um, yeah, just asking yourself, why should the audience care has helped me start to really empathize with people that I've never even met before and thinking about what are their struggles and their needs and how can I find a way to get this message to them so that at the end of the day, that whole big philosophical, it's going to save our species can be realized. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I appreciate that you've put a lot of thought into it because it's true. I mean, uh, even with this podcast, the same thing. I was like, yeah, but are people going to be interested in listening to these stories and what's so important about pursuing your curiosity? And it's like, no, you are, you're helping yourself out in so many different ways. And that's why I love sharing individual stories because it's, it's just piecing together the little gaps and it's going to hopefully inspire people or wake people up to certain things or see things in a new light. And especially with our education system. I mean, yeah. hopefully, yeah, that would be great if you can continue to piece, like get into more of that, because I, I feel like that is, again, one area that really is not benefiting the whole, unfortunately. And yeah, it's so sad to hear like, oh yeah, books aren't like the thing anymore. I'm like, oh, I used to love the book fair. <laughs> it's just like, bring books back. But yeah, the book yeah, fair. Yeah, we have to find the things that will inspire people. Yeah. <laughs> they were just so fun. But like, that's where your imagination could run wild was with all mm. these, but at least with mine is like, you go in and you're like, Oh my God, look at all of these things. And it's all about figuring out how you can get, yeah, those people that are in the city or the people who are in the country, the people who are not exposed to the things we are, how do you get them to care? It's like the same yeah. thing with the wars going on. You know, there are people suffering from the war and people are here like, oh, that sucks. And then uh, <laughs> going back to your daily thing. And it's like, okay, but what can we do to help? Like, how can we try to increase that and just get mm. people more involved? 
Yeah, that's always the yeah, challenge, absolutely. right? Yeah, it is a challenge. And uh, and I don't think there's one answer to it. I think there's lots of answers and, and hopefully you stumble on one of them. Yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, James Michael, I really appreciate you being here and I loved your story. I think you're a great storyteller. So I'm going to take some notes as well and try to soak that in because I'd love to get to that point where I can just fluidly talk and not stumble over my words. You know, I practice getting there. <laughs> I think the first but. thing that really helped me was being forced to do it. When I became Ooh. a corporal in the Marine Corps, I was now like, it just happened. Like I, I just happened to have all the right requirements. And I became an NCO and they're like, all right, you're in charge of 28 dudes. Talk to them. And I was like, like, I don't know how to talk to these people. <laughs> and so it was just like forced into it. And then over time, just like exposing myself more and more into it, it was just like, oh, okay, you know, I can actually do this. I think public speaking is one of the arenas where you can fake it till you make it. And I'm because I am always petrified of talking in front of a crowd. I think I mentioned this at the end of the, the school year for, for your class that like one of the things I wanted to work on was public speaking because I constantly feel this fear every time I'm in front of a classroom of people. And the fear mostly stems from inadequacy and worry that like, I don't know enough for these people to listen to me. And, and then, you know, one of the things that helped me with that was like going back to the days of Chris Bird and Chris would, would say to me, teach what you know, what you know is more than them because they signed up for your class. <laughs> and I was just like, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> so that's yeah. what helped me. <laughs> no, that's true. I, I do feel that as well. Uh, you know, I just, I dive into a lot of things, but when it comes to actually sharing that information with people, it's like, am I actually presenting things that they know? Like what if, yeah, it comes from a level of inadequacy. What if I'm, I'm stupid mm -hmm. in how it is that I'm coming off or is this actually relevant? Are people actually going to understand what it is that I'm saying? So I definitely yeah. get that. I feel like there's a lot of people, especially introverts that are like that. You know, if anybody identifies as an introvert or a quieter person, yeah, it's just something happened in life where it was like, you know, be quiet and shut up and don't share, don't speak up. Nobody wants to hear you type of thing. And mm -hmm. it's like, okay, well, I guess I'll be quiet, but you can break out of that. We're all slowly doing it in our own ways, which is great. Yeah. So I guess from here, I'm going to wrap it up. And I want to thank you again, James Michael, for coming on here. I really hope people have heard your story and they resonate with different aspects of it. And they go and explore nature and get in, in touch with themselves and go learn about fire. Go learn about doing that because it's it's really fun, but it is extremely challenging. And um in the bio, I'm going to add your email. I believe you said it was okay for people to contact you through email. Yeah, that's totally fine. Yeah. And then, of course, as your website eventually evolves and becomes published, I hope that you share that with me so I can share it with everybody else and I can always update the yeah. bio on there too. Can I tell you the name of it at least? Oh, yeah. You have the name? Yeah. Let's hear it. <laughs> yeah. So it took a while to think about it. Um, like I said, I think stones have, or rocks in general, just geology has always had like a special place in my heart. 
And one day I can tell you a crazy story about rocks, <laughs> but <laughs> I ended up deciding to call it the stone path. And there's oh, a lot of reasons for that, but, and, and, and it really resonates for me. And, and uh, the thing I love about um, stones are that stones are just rocks that have been manipulated by humans. And so it, it has a lot of deep meanings for me, but the stone path yeah. is what I to go with. <laughs> I love that. I was going to say that kind of like describes like your life too, because you kind of started off with like this fashion fascination of archaeology and then diving into stones yeah. and rocks. And now it's like, here you are, you're about to describe your life and your journey through that. That's so cool. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thanks. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, yeah, of course. And so everybody who's listening, thank you again so much for your time. Um, I truly value your time. Time is like such an important thing for people, such an important currency. So I really appreciate it. And I hope that you take James Michael's words and really just have it sink into your heart and into your brain because I feel like we covered a lot of deep things that you know it resonates with a lot of us so if you have any questions feel free to reach out but until then thank you and until the next episode bye-bye right.